What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Dom. Hi, everybody. The bulls are trying to take charge as we head into afternoon trading. As you can see behind me, the Nasdaq and S&P have turned positive, and the Dow is pairing its losses at this hour. We're only down about 48 points. All this getting this boost after New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said the same will ease some coronavirus restrictions in three regions of the economy right now. And that, again, helped to put a lift under the entire market here. The S&P is positive by three points now. The Nasdaq is up by 65 or three quarters of a percent. That said, the reopening sensitive stocks, the airlines, the cruise lines, the casinos, they're all still lagging today. Uh, we can check on the uh, MGM Resorts uh, as one instance, down 5% today. Norwegian down nearly that much. And the airlines in general down more than 2%. Let's get to all of it and more of today's news flow with Bob Bassani. Afternoon, Bob. Good afternoon, Kelly. And we had a nice little rally in the middle of the day. And uh, Kelly is fo- right, folks. Let me show you uh, the uh, S&P 500 because we're sitting right near the highs for the day. The Dow is on the verge of going positive, uh, just shy of that. But we've had a great rally in the S&P 500. Mid-morning, uh, Governor Cuomo talked about uh, the procedures for reopening New York State, although not New York City, unfortunately, at least not imminently. That's not going to happen. But the rest of New York State is starting to talk about that. And we're knocking on the doors of breaking out here. 29.39 was the recent high at the end of April. We're only a few points away from that. Then we go into where we were in the early part of March. So we're uh, breaking out here potentially. Mostly it's been defensive. Kelly's right today. Healthcare, consumer staples. But there are some exceptions and that's some tech stocks. Uh, Most of the time, the semiconductors have been doing very well. NVIDIA is at a new historic high. Generally, semiconductors have been outperforming uh, in a sector where, uh, you know, the defensive names have generally been doing a little bit better. I mentioned the laggards here, cyclicals, industrial stocks, energy stocks, bank stocks. Look at the Dow laggards here, Chevron, Caterpillar, Raytheon, Boeing, and J.P. Morgan. Finally, a special shout out to the banks. They're just having a really tough time of it. Uh, Take a look at Wells Fargo. This is a nine-year low for Wells Fargo. Goldman talked about increasing loan loss reserves for the whole bank community, not just Wells Fargo today and saying that loan loss reserves were likely going to increase. Guys, back to you. Under 25 bucks, a nine-year low. That's pretty striking, Bob Banks. We appreciate it. Bob Bassani there. The terrible April jobs report has sparked a debate between stock market bulls and economists about whether layoffs have peaked. Steve Leesman is here now to explain. Steve. Kelly, thanks. Yeah, an interesting debate has broken out. Everybody agrees that the number of 20.5 million Americans losing their jobs is absolutely horrific. But a question about what it means for the future. The optimists point to the 18 million who are on temporary layoff and say, you know what, these folks tend to come back very quickly, at least the way it's been in prior recessions. But J.P. Morgan writing over the weekend, almost all the increase in unemployment was due to an increase in the ranks of those, quote, on temporary layoff, though BLF so classified anyone who said they did not work because of the coronavirus. Thus, it's unclear these people actually will have jobs to return to when the economy reopens. Another source of optimism was these state reopenings that are out there with some saying, you know what, this means that the temporary layoffs folks would be hired pretty quickly and we could have some economic growth sooner than we thought. 
On the other hand, as economists often do, Oxford Economics writing, how long the markets are willing to downplay the disastrous economic news now evolving is anyone's guess. We suspect that fear factor will prevail after lockdown restrictions are lifted and restrain household spending propensities. That is, people aren't going to go even if it's open. And there's more tech, tough economic data on the way this week. Uh, Kelly, we'll see how markets process it. We have an, the inflation debate starts tomorrow with the Consumer Price Index. Fed Chair Powell on Wednesday. Jobless claims on Thursday, another near 2.5 to 3 million claims expected. And then retail sales will tell us at least an initial read for how consumers were spending in the month of April. Both markets and economists watching the behavior around these reopenings. They want to know, were people home because the government told them to stay home? Or were they home because they wanted to be home, Kelly? You know, you're speaking of debate, Steve, one of the ones that's been kicked off again after Ken Rogoff's uh, comments last week that interest rates should be deeply negative and after we saw Fed's funds futures uh, go a little bit negative, is whether that is still a possibility by the central bank? Um, not among the Fed folks that I talked to and or cover. There were just some recent comments where uh, uh, in the past hour, actually, Raphael Bostic, the Atlanta Fed president, just said in a webinar that he sees uh, uh, negative rates as one of the weaker tools in the toolkit. And uh, Charlie Evans, the Chicago Fed president, just said about five minutes ago that he thought that uh, it was not something he'd be anticipating we'd be doing here in the United States. So in, in, has Powell himself specifically weighed in on this, Steve, and said he's not a fan of it, or has he kind of left it up to the others? I, I believe he has. I'd have to go back and check specifically. But my understanding from what Powell has said publicly is that he is also not a fan of negative interest rates. There's a lot of reasons why not to. It would really complicate the money market industry, all sorts of things in the United States. Although there is some pretty good academic research, I think Ken Rogoff was probably the font of some of this, that says that if you were setting it based upon the underperformance of the U.S. economy, you would indeed set rates in a deeply negative place right now. Yeah, it's a big uh, debate, uh, to say the least. But like you just reported, Bostic and Evans both weighing in, uh, perhaps against it for now. Uh, we'll, we'll have more, though, I'm sure, in the days and weeks ahead. Hopefully not. That means yeah. the economy's better, right? We don't want to have that debate, but, uh, you know, in case we do. Uh, we'll see you then. Steve, Good thank point. you. Uh, Steve Leisman. Despite Thanks. the record unemployment figures and concerns about a slow recovery, the stock market just keeps going up. How long can this continue? Joining me now are Jason Brady, the CEO of Thornburg Investment Management. Terry Spath is chief investment officer at Sierra Mutual Funds. Both of them, by the way, manage funds that are outperforming the market right now. And Tom Porcelli is chief U.S. economist at RBC Capital Markets. It's great to have you all here. Tom, let me quickly pick up with you on the negative rates thing. Um, do you have you kind yeah. of taken a stance on this one way or the other? Yeah, it's, it's, I think Steve nailed it. It's not going to happen, at least not now. Uh, I, there, there's no empirical evidence to show that it's helped in any of the countries that have uh, been using it. Moreover, uh, you know, there's there's punitive economic outcomes associated with it, uh, not the least of which uh, is capital flight. I mean, we saw that uh, quite clearly in, in Europe. So I, I do not believe that that's where we are going to be today. Um, but look, I, I think as uh, if we learned anything from from this Fed, it's, um, you know, they're they're willing to sort of toss away um, old orthodoxies. I mean, you know, the Fed, this is a Fed that did not want to engage in, uh, um, you know, buying credit. Um, but here we are with the Fed now engaged in, in an IG program. So, yeah. Um, I, I think that things would have to get a lot worse, though, uh, for us to go down that path. Well, Jason, let me bring you in. It's your limited term income fund that's up uh, this year, about 1% or so. Uh, 
How are you managing to generate that kind of return? Where are you investing client funds? And where would you start to rotate if any rotation is underway now as we move into the back half of the year? Sure. So uh, what we're navigating here is obviously an unprecedented situation, but with a lot of echoes of times past. And that's clearly shown by the fact that the Fed is in addition to some of the, the, the programs that Tom mentioned, is resurrected all of their old programs from 2008. Uh, the real issue here is that the Fed has pushed and, and regulators have pushed uh, markets to be the lenders uh, in, in the U.S. economy. So we are those lenders in, in our fixing and portfolios, and we found a tremendous number of different opportunities to step in from a liquidity standpoint when other folks are less willing to. So that's how we've been able to generate some of those returns. As this continues, and I think it will continue for some time, we're going to see ebbs and flows of liquidity. We're going to see ebbs and flows of opportunity. And navigating that's really key to investor outcomes, which is really what we're built to do as an active manager. So maybe if you kind of put that in a little bit plainer uh, speak for our, our listeners, sure. what kinds of income investments would you recommend right now? Sure. So right now you see some of the basic blocking and tackling industrials, which are disfavored by the equity markets, to actually be survivors in the business. So we see some components, uh, parts manufacturers, you know, uh, semiconductors were mentioned as a po- and positively as a cyclical. Well, typically those are pretty cyclical business and command some pretty big spreads in this marketplace. Um, in this market, you have a, a different situation. So something that was considered to be more risky because it tends to be more cyclical is being advantaged by the current uh, economic and, and, frankly, health environment. So you have to take what you know about the businesses that you look at as a lender and put that into the context of the current environment at the, both the individual and portfolio level. Okay, Taryn, come into you. In, in- you saw United fail. Right. No, I, I agree. United's uh, deal falling through on Friday we had a lot of people yeah. of- concerned about that. Uh, just I want to pivot for a second, guys, if you'll stay right there, bring in Rick Santelli. We just had a bunch of three-year notes go up for auction, obviously very interested in how demand was. Rick, what can you tell us? Well, demand I gave is a Charlie minus, a C minus, so a smidge below average. Remember, this is $42 billion of three-year notes, the biggest amount ever auctioned. Uh, the rest of the auction series, 10s and 30s, also is a package the biggest ever. Let's go through it. The yield, 0.23. Lowest yield at an auction for the three-year note ever. Uh, we go through all the pricing. It's pretty easy on this one. Where it priced in relation to where the market was and the one issued was spot on. Everything else was just a little below average, whether it was bid cover at 243, all slightly below average. So we gave it a C-, minus, but... That is nothing to worry about at this point. We're moving a lot of paper, and even though demand wasn't stellar, the longer maturities, which are coming Tuesday and Wednesday, probably are going to be a bit more interesting. Kelly, back to you. All right, so lowest yield ever, and as a result, demand about a C-. minus. Rick, thank you, sir. We appreciate it. Rick Santelli. Terry, let me get back to you. I think that's like the second time you've had to uh, you know, sit through some auction results. So you, you get the rest of the time here. Uh, tell me, you, your fund, all-asset fund, is down about 3% this year. The S&P is obviously down about 10% right Right now. Um, how did you pull that off and what's your advice to investors now? Right. Yeah. Thanks, Kelly, for having us back with Sierra. Yeah, we've had a, a tough year, challenging year in terms of investing, but our strategies have really paid off. And I think it goes somewhat to Jason's point, your earlier guest, about really being tactical in this type of environment. We just had Rick's report. There's all sorts of economic data that's been coming out. I mean, we've really paid a heavy toll for this coronavirus. And that is going to continue to inject volatility into these markets going forward. And so I think that the recovery that we're going to see is going to be somewhat in fits and starts. And our approach 
approach, which is essentially buy low, sell high, is to make sure and identify trends and rules that we have in place as when to buy and when to sell. We were in long treasuries all through March, long U.S. treasuries that uh, really helped performance, and now we're completely out of that and back into risk on in the form of high-yield corporate bonds, emerging market debt, preferred stocks. High-yield corporate bonds is interesting. You also mentioned emerging uh, market debt, high-yield stocks, but on the corporate bond piece, but how important is the Fed's role here? Uh, and it does, is it basically underpinning, you know, your entire investment in the sector, or would you be willing to go out on that limb no matter what? Uh, no, I wouldn't be willing to go onto that limb no matter what. I mean, I think what um, there's a couple of things that are going on. Yes, the Fed has absolutely been um, saying, I don't think they've been doing it yet, but saying that they would buy high-yield corporate bonds, saying that they would buy muni bonds. And it's simplest, right? Just follow the Fed. There's a little bit more to it. We are seeing positive trends in that sector. And our rules are pointing us into that asset class and showing us that the trend that we're experiencing now is one that we can expect to ride for a little bit longer. And finally, Terry, how long uh, do you think this might play out based on some of where where these valuations are? Are we talking, you know, for the rest of May, for the rest of the summer, for the rest of the year? Right. Hard to say. I mean, our trends are based on six to nine month indicators. That said, this is a very different market than what we typically see. So we continue to watch everything on a daily basis. I do think that this recovery will be more of a swish than a V-shape. Things take these stairs up and the elevator down, meaning they're a lot slower to go up than they are to go down. So hopefully this rides out for a little bit while longer, but we'll be watching it closely. All right. Keep us posted. It's good to speak with all of you today. Terry Spath, Jason Brady and Tom Porcelli. Thank you so much. Coming up, we're going to talk about Disney's Shanghai theme park reopening its doors this weekend with thousands of visitors. We've got an inside look at the new normal in the park and what it could mean for reopening here at home. Plus, rhetoric between the U.S. and China is heating up due to the pandemic. Now the Department of Justice is warning that China poses a serious cyber espionage threat to our pharma companies. That story is ahead. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. Shares of Disney are falling today and down more than 25 percent so far this year as it reels from the COVID-19 pandemic. But today is a major milestone as Disney Shanghai becomes the company's first theme park to reopen. Eunice Yoon is in Shanghai with the path forward for Disney there. And Julia Borson sat down with Disney CEO Bob Chapik just a short while ago and joins us with his headlines. Eunice, what's it like there? Let's start with you. Hey, Kelly. Well, Shanghai Disneyland is closed for the night, but today the park welcomed thousands of visitors with great fanfare and new safety precautions. Another sign life is getting back to normal in Shanghai, selfies in front of the Disneyland castle. After being shut for 15 weeks, Shanghai Disneyland today became the only Disney theme park open for business, but it's definitely not business as usual. The park is still under post-pandemic restrictions to keep people healthy. The man in charge to do that here is head of operations, Andrew Bolstein. 
We always have that space around everybody. They can feel comfortable. Every line has markers instructing people to keep at least three feet away from the next person at entrances and even while on rides like Pirates of the Caribbean. As our guests are loading in, you'll see we put an empty seat between each group and then also an empty row between each of the rows. At the park, visitors get constant reminders to keep a safe distance from each other. At the restaurants, entire tables are being blocked off. All the restaurants, the menus are staying the same, but some of the service styles may be different. So we're not doing buffets. Uh, we're going to have a buffet concept, but we actually will serve the food for you. Hand sanitizer is available at restaurants and stores. Mobile payments are encouraged to avoid passing of cash. Theaters will stay shut. Parades limited. No fireworks to discourage crowds. But you can still see your favorite characters. Just don't get that close. Nikki and the gang are social distancing just like everybody else. No shaking hands or hugging. That has to wait for safer times. And Kelly, when a Disney park reopens near you, you could very well see, see some of these health practices over there. Uh, Bolstein told me that the team here has been learning a lot and sharing a lot of information with the industry about how to manage this pandemic. You know, Andrew Ross Sorkin made an interesting point this morning where he said maybe it's not so much about, you know, just getting into and being in the theme park, but about traveling there. So what do we know about where Shanghai Disney visitors come from and how that might uh, compare with what we're able to do in terms of reopening here in the U.S. or most people are getting on a plane and flying out west or to Florida? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so far, we don't have any of that data. But uh, the assumption is that a lot of the people have come from around the Shanghai area. And then, of course, there are some people who do make the trip from other cities. Um, for example, for us, though, there was some anxiety when you think, OK, I'm coming from Beijing. Now I have to get onto a plane or a train. So that might uh, cause some people to to uh, give them pause before they decide to come to the park. But what was interesting today is that there was a lot of positive feedback about Shanghai Disneyland, that people were talking about how you only have to wait maybe five minutes or 20 minutes at the most for some of the popular rides. And actually, there's a lot of discussion online about how this might be a reason to come to Shanghai for the weekend. So it's not only about the park now, but we're hearing some discussion about how this could boost tourism for Shanghai. Right, which might be a good thing or might not. Uh, we'll see. Eunice, appreciate it. I'll turn to Julia Borson with some more remarks from the company and the CEO himself, Julia. But my guess is you tell a lot of people they can wait five minutes for a ride at Disney, they're, they're probably going to show up. Well, Bob Chapek, relatively new CEO of Disney, did tell me that they're very much encouraged by the early demand that they are seeing for the Shanghai Park and that they plan to cautiously add about another 5,000 tickets to capacity every week. He didn't comment, though, on when they expect the other Disney parks to open. We certainly want to open up as soon as we can across the world, but we're going to do so in a responsible way. So um, we're excited for our guests. We're excited for our cast. We want to get our cast back to work as soon as possible. So this is a first step. It's a baby step and we're moving slowly, but uh, we're very encouraged by what we see in Shanghai. JPEG also weighing in on Disney's next theatrical release, Mulan, which will be hitting theaters in mid-July. This after the company is releasing a movie that was intended for theaters, Artemis Fowl, on Disney Plus in June. We believe in the theatrical experience, particularly to launch big blockbuster franchise films. I mean, it fuels the entire Disney company from consumer products to theme parks all the way to Disney Plus. And so we really think that that's the smart way to launch our big tentpole 
films. Chapek stressing that Disney at Disney, they really want to be nimble across the company and every division. And he didn't rule out future direct-to-consumer releases on Disney Plus, saying that they would evaluate putting movies on that new streaming platform on a case-by-case basis. Kelly, back over to you. So uh, one of the things I think Eunice mentioned earlier is it was about 16 weeks uh, for the Shanghai parks to reopen, Julia. So maybe it's possible, I don't know, that we could be talking about Disney parks reopening here within a a month or two, maybe. Maybe it involves masks. But my guess is by kind of limiting the number of people who can go to Disney, they're inherently making it more attractive, even if they're it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a business hit for them for a long time until that thing's back at normal capacity. Absolutely. And I did ask him that question because Disney did just announce that they would be starting to open up Disney Springs in Orlando. Now, this is sort of the mall that's outside the Orlando Park, and that would start opening up on May 20th, which is just around the corner. And I asked him if that means we could see the whole of the Orlando Park starting to open up in just a month or two or a couple of months. And he said that a lot of different things need to be figured out first. And it's not just a function of whether there's demand, but also what the local government says, the state government says about the ability to really open up uh, a gathering place of that size and scope. So there are a lot of different things that need to be figured out. But I think the behavior of people at Disney Springs, whether or not there's significant demand and whether or not people can really respect the social distancing rules yeah. will definitely come into play when they evaluate how to reopen that the, park. The last quick thing, Julie, that I, I do wonder about, I, I asked Eunice about this, but would they ever reopen the parks to people who could basically come within the state or within a, you know, a, a close proximity I know people in this area who have tried to book hotel rooms down south, they've often been told you can't book this room if you're from New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. And if those same precautions would extend to something like going to Disney. Well, look, I think what's really interesting is that there are so many different levels of oversight here. It's not just what Disney feels is appropriate. It's what the local government feels appropriate, the state government. And I know that especially here in California, there's been a lot of interaction between Disney management and Governor Newsom. Newsom commented on that, um, the fact that they're talking to Disney in his press conference just last week. I know the same is true in Florida. So I don't know what kinds of restrictions they'd put on people coming in from out of state. But California and Florida are both very populous states. And there are certainly a lot of people who used to go to their parks just within the state. So I think there is definitely an audience for the parks even if you just limited it to the state. But who knows how many of those people would even feel comfortable coming. Right. And it depends, of course, on how unpleasant or different it would feel to be at the parks right now. Yeah. And, you know, July uh, wearing a face mask <laughs> could could get a little difficult. Uh, like I said, that five-minute ride, though, thing could be an enticement. Julia, thanks uh, for bringing us all that information. We appreciate it. Julia Borson speaking with Disney CEO today. Coming up, as states reopen, so are the doors of open houses. But is anyone showing up? We'll have some answers next. Plus, they represent one out of every 10 U.S. hotels with some names you'll recognize. Quality Inn, Econo Lodge, Residence Inn. We'll speak with the CEO of parent company Choice Hotels about the industry's path forward. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older like a family vacation or starting your dream business welcome to connie's coffee how may i help you aarp's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds that's why the younger you are the more you need aarp start planning today at aarp.org money tools 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Let's get the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for the headlines this hour. Sue? Kelly, thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. Here's what we know at this hour. The White House is recommending testing of more than one million nursing home residents and staff over the next two weeks. Starbucks says this week it will reopen 150 of its drive through locations and some takeaway-only stores in the United Kingdom. The coffee chain has reopened 90 percent of its stores in China and about 85 percent of United States locations for delivery and takeout. Three Boeing planes are delivering personal protective equipment to a South Carolina hospital today. The PPE will be going to health care workers at the Medical University of South Carolina. As always, for more of our, on our coronavirus coverage, you can always go to CNBC.com. Kelly, back to you. All right, Sue, thank you. Sue Herrera there. Shares of Redfin climbing today despite a downgrade to neutral from positive at Susquehanna. They're talking about some valuation concerns, saying the company's advantage in virtual home showings may slow as more states reopen and we see more open houses. But even if there are more open houses, will people show up? Diana Olick is here with a look at the path forward for real estate. Julia? <laughs> Diana, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, Kelly, buyers seem to be ready, but sellers, not so much. We visited this open house in Atlanta on Saturday where about a dozen masked families came through over the course of two hours. The lack of listings, which was pretty bad before the pandemic hit, is even worse now. I've had two sellers in the last week that were about to list their home, fully photographed, ready to go. And they said, you know what, we're just going to stay put for now. Now, for the week ending May 2nd, total listings were down 19% annually and new listings were down 39%. That, according to Realtor.com, some potential buyers have been touring homes online and agents are pushing virtual live tours, but some don't exactly like that. I guess we looked on Zillow, but ultimately, um, really like to see things in, in the field. And so you just can't get an impression from a camera. Now, Hurst said he did sell one house to a buyer who saw it only online, but most seem to want to get into the home before they seal the deal. Kelly? Although, you know, and it's been interesting watching this play out in my own neighborhood, Diana, where the, the houses are selling, I mean, especially because a lot of people want to flee the cities for the suburbs right now. So every community will be different, you know, depending on where they are in that formulation. But people often want to come see the house one-on-one -on -one anyway. So, you know, I, I, it seems to me like most real estate agents are able to schedule those visits and kind of keep things somewhat going like normal, even if they don't have big group open house events. Right. And a lot of them are doing self-showings. That is, if the house is empty, they'll give you a lockbox code and let you go tour the home by yourself. And that's especially why new construction is so enticing right now. Not only is the home brand new, clean, but you can go tour it by yourself without an agent, without anybody else around. So I think the builders are going to be the real beneficiaries here, especially with this low inventory. Interesting. That's a good point. Uh, Diana, thanks very much. Diane Olick there with the latest. 
23andMe and the rest of the home DNA testing industry are riding out a period of slow sales right now, but the company's unusual CEO still has big plans for her business. As part of a new CNBC documentary, Scott Wapner spent time with the CEO to find out what she's thinking. Soon after 23andMe's launch in 2006, it was charging $1,000 for a test kit that would reveal a customer's ancestry and odds of getting certain illnesses. But from the start, Wojcicki had a bigger vision, the audacious belief that by gathering and analyzing customers' genetic data, 23andMe could actually change the direction of healthcare. The way I see it is like this is an opportunity for the consumer to take back like control of your own health. We give you something about you in black and white that inspires you to drive change. You can find out more about the company's plans and the controversies swirling around the industry in DNA Testing, The Promise and the Peril, a new CNBC documentary airing tonight at 10 Eastern and Pacific. Coming up here on The Exchange, tensions between the U.S. and China are bubbling back up amid the pandemic, and the government says China is now a cyber threat to U.S. pharma companies. We'll speak with the DOJ about this threat and what they're doing to combat it. Plus, Tesla is suing and threatening California. We'll tell you why and what's at stake in this latest back and forth. The Exchange is back right after this. Welcome back. Let's get to Dom Chu now for a look at the markets and some of today's biggest movers with the Dow now turning positive. Dom? All right. So, Kelly, I mean, there's a bit of a turnaround at least being attempted right now. At the lows of the day, the Dow was down around 261 points. The S&P was lower by about 26. Now, the key sectors in focus right now are healthcare, technology, and consumer discretionary. As you can see, they're the real outperformers. On the downside, you've got energy, financials, and materials, the real underperformers there. Now, some stocks to watch include shares of Cardinal Health, which is higher right now after the drug and medical equipment distributor posted quarterly results that beat expectations for both profits and revenues. Cardinal was helped along by increased demand for supplies due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Meanwhile, shares of Under Armour are getting hit, as you can see. The Athletic Apparel and Shoemaker reported disappointing financial results as the pandemic shut stores and slowed sales. It will embark on a cost-cutting campaign and will end on shares of AutoNation, which are higher right now by nearly 5%. The car dealership company reported better than expected results, adding it saw some sales trends improve throughout the month of April. So those stocks on the move. Kel, back over to you. Yep, Dom, thanks. We appreciate it. Dominic Chu. Let's turn now to the rhetoric between the U.S. and China heating up as a result of this pandemic. Here's Secretary of State Mike Pompeo explaining why China's attempts to cover up details about the virus have led to elevated tensions. Authoritarian regimes uh, go to ground. They cover, they deceive, they put out disinformation. Uh, they deny their people individual liberties, all the things that we've known for so long. We've, we've dealt with communist regimes before. We're, we're seeing it now again. And President Trump uh, is working diligently to make sure we secure freedom for the American people and do the things we need to do with respect to China to make sure that this next century is one where America can continue to thrive. Well, now the Department of Justice is warning that China poses a serious cyber threat to pharma companies. Let's head to D.C., where our own Eamon Javers is with John Demers, the Assistant Attorney General for National Security at the DOJ. Eamon? Yeah, Kelly, that's right. We're here on a very windy Pennsylvania Avenue just outside the Department of Justice. And as you say, I'm with John Demers, the Assistant Attorney General for National Security. Thank you so much for joining us out here. And as the Assistant Attorney General for National Security, you deal with all the tough stuff, terrorism, espionage and all the rest. 
Right now, though, there are a number of reports in the media uh, that the United States is getting set to accuse the Chinese of trying to hack into U.S. pharmaceutical companies to get some of that data surrounding all the efforts to develop a coronavirus vaccine. What can you tell us about what you're seeing uh, of that Chinese effort? Right. Well, without confirming that exactly and getting ahead of things, here's what we know. Biomedical research has long been at the heart of something the Chinese have uh, wanted and something they've engaged in uh, economic espionage to get. It's at the heart of their Made in China 2025 plan, which means it's a big priority for theirs. We've charged a number of cases over the years, including one just earlier this year in Boston involving biomedical research, uh, all of which involved the Chinese government, the intelligence services, and individuals in China. It would be crazy to think that right now the Chinese were not behind some of the cyber activity that we're seeing targeting U.S. pharmaceutical companies and targeting uh, research institutes around the country that are doing coronavirus research treatments and vaccines. So the FBI told me last week that they're working directly with the pharmaceutical companies uh, that are involved here. What's your message to those companies, to those CEOs? They're not necessarily set up for this kind of nation-state hacking attempt. What are you telling them about what you're seeing? Right. So the message to the companies consistent with what we say all the time across the industries. Know where your people are, both physically, are the people who are in the labs supposed to be in the labs, and then in cyberspace or on your IT systems. Do you know who's accessing data? Do you know if they're, if they're an insider, if they work there, do they have a reason to access that data or not? And if they're outside having the best cybersecurity defenses and making sure your defenses against cyber intrusions and insider threat are well integrated within the company. The number one predictor we have on the insider side is people who are where they shouldn't be, whether that means physically or on, uh, on the IT systems. Mr. Demers, it's Kelly here. I just want to pick up on, on your response there and, and Eamon's question, uh, because this, what you've said is pretty urgent around the situation. Uh, that You say pretty explicitly that the Chinese are going to try to steal your data if you're one of the pharmaceutical companies working on these vaccines and treatments, that this data is today's equivalent of the Holy, uh, Holy Grail. Its commercial value will be tremendous. Its geopolitical value will be equally tremendous. Right. And you've just said, you know, companies need to, right. to kind of watch uh, for threats. But is there more that we should expect the DOJ, the federal government, to try to do to secure this data? And is it only pharma companies who are vulnerable to this kind of hacking? Well, it's any company or research institute that's doing uh, research in this area of coronavirus vaccines and treatments. As you said, this is the holy grail of biomedical research right now, tremendous value both commercially and geopolitically. Uh, if uh, there are any issues, and look, the Federal Bureau of Investigations is working with those companies now, it's working with research institutes now to help uh, exchange intelligence, to exchange uh, security tips depending on the different systems. The Department of Homeland Security is also involved, so there is more the federal government's doing here to try to work with uh, those companies and other institutes that are involved to help them protect themselves. John, wouldn't the United States simply want the Chinese to get this vaccine data anyway? It, we're in the middle of a global uh, pandemic. I mean, the devil's advocate question is, you know, wouldn't we ultimately be in a position to just give the data to the Chinese if we do come up with a vaccine before they do? Yeah, I mean, what the pharmaceutical companies are going to do with the data once they develop the vaccine, I'm sure they will be selling it around the world. But the, no company wants to have their intellectual property stolen, even if ultimately they're going to share their product widely around the world. 
And let me ask you about the dramatic news that we saw last week in the Michael Flynn case. The Department of Justice dropped the charges on Michael Flynn. Uh, there's been some real concern about that, a, a, a part of a number of people around the country. I wonder what your perspective is, though, as a person who oversees terrorism and espionage cases. Are you concerned about any precedent here that this would make it more likely that people who are being interviewed by the FBI will lie to the FBI going forward as a result of that decision last week? I don't have any comment on that. No comment on that. Uh, okay, Kelly, I guess we'll, t we'll toss it back over to you. All right, Thanks, I, John. Thank I you very much. Thank you. Yeah. appreciate your time. Thanks. Yeah, our, Eamon, we thank you. We especially thank John Demers for trying to bring attention to this issue. And as he said, it's not just pharmaceutical companies. Anybody working on this critical information needs to be sure uh, that it's not being stolen. Speaking of pharma, CNBC will be gathering healthcare leaders at the center of the fight against coronavirus for an interactive virtual event tomorrow. The guests will run from the CEOs of Moderna, Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer uh, to so many more, the former head of the CDC and so forth. Learn more and request an invitation at cnbcevents.com slash healthy returns. Coming up amid a U.S. meat shortage, pork exports to China are soaring. We're going to tell you why and what it implies for prices. Plus, there's no doubt the hotel industry is suffering, and it'll be a long road back to normal. We'll ask the parent company of Comfort Inn, Econo Lodge & Quality about its plans to lure back travelers. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. As the Department of Justice examines meat processors amid a meat shortage and rising prices here in the U.S., our pork exports to China are actually soaring. Aditi Roy joins me now with a look at why this is all happening. It's good to see you, Aditi. Great to see you, Kelly. Yeah, it's such a conundrum. And as restaurants are getting ready to reopen this week, the increased demand for meat could put more pressure on already rising meat prices caused by plant interruptions. That Look at this map. It shows all the major pork processing plants across the country. Among the top producers, we're talking about Smithfield, Tyson and JBS. Nearly two dozen plants are functioning under capacity. A couple are shut down due, completely due to the coronavirus outbreaks. People have died as a result of some of these outbreaks as well at these plants. Meantime, pork exports to China are soaring. Weekly sales to China last week were the highest they've been in a year. Industry experts like David Maloney of data analytics company Aerostream says those experts are higher because China takes whole hogs. They don't require as much processing and therefore aren't as affected by those plant delays. Now, Christine McCracken of Rabobank also says pork prices had been depressed before the pandemic and that prompted China to start buying more pork. But now pork prices are on the rise and McCracken believes that those higher prices will reduce demand from China as early as this week, and that'll help to normalize prices in the coming weeks. And by the way, Kelly Tyson telling us it expects all of its plans to be operational by tomorrow. Idea. So you, a, a baby girl, right? So it was the six month. I, I didn't see you last week. You, and I'm looking. Is that an Emmy over your shoulder? I have so many questions, Aditi. <laughs> there's there's OK. There's a big story behind that, because I had been nominated when I was in local news. I can't tell you, I think about 10 times and never won. I was the Susan Lucci of the Philadelphia News Emmys. <laughs> and I finally won. So because I did, I am going to be milking this <laughs> as much as I can. And I did have a baby girl back in November. And congratulations to you. I haven't Thank seen you, you since then. You didn't then name either. her Emmy, did you? But <laughs> I would have, but close, Anya. Oh, nice. Well, you look great. It's good to see you. Congrats. <laughs>
Uh, Thank you. Roy. Great to see you, too. Thank you so much. Uh, coming up, let's talk a little Tesla. They're suing the state of California, saying it's time to open up as the largest manufacturing employer in the state, in fact, and it's 20,000 employees. Will California be forced to give in to Tesla? We'll have the very latest on this dispute after this quick break. Welcome back. Elon Musk raising the stakes over the weekend in his ongoing battle to reopen the Tesla factory in Fremont, California, now suing Alameda County and threatening to move the plant altogether. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin weighed in on this feud earlier today on Squawk on the Street. Listen. California should prioritize doing whatever they need to do to solve those health issues so that he can open quickly and safely where they're going to find as he's threatened he's moving his production to a different state. And joining me now with the very latest is our Phil LeBeau. Surprised to hear uh, the secretary taking such a, a, a stand on that one, Phil. But I also didn't realize that Tesla is the biggest employer in the States. This is, a, this is a biggie. Well, it is. And Elon Musk, to a certain extent, is sitting in the catbird seat here. There are dozens of states that would be dying to have a Tesla final assembly plant in their state. And if Musk continues to get frustrated with the state of California, and specifically with Alameda County, then... Anything is possible down the road. Look, the plant's not going to close immediately. But if you take a look at shares of Tesla, keep in mind that they have filed a federal lawsuit against the Alameda County Health Department, basically to force them to say, okay, you're ready to go. You can open up and start production. Over the weekend, Elon Musk was tweeting about this. He said in one tweet, the unelected and ignorant interim health officer of Alameda is acting contrary to the governor, the president, and our constitutional freedoms, and just plain common sense. Just as a refresher, the Tesla Fremont plant has been closed since March 26th. Now, Alameda County says we are working with Tesla. Uh, that's not fast enough for Elon Musk. He wants them to get the plant back up and running. Remember, a number of automakers around the country. You've got uh, both Toyota and Honda restarting production today. BMW down in South Carolina has already started. And then next Monday, you will see the big three begin their final assembly plants again. Kelly, I'm not sure that anybody fully appreciates exactly how important this is to Tesla. Remember, it has a plant in China, but most of their production still comes from the Fremont plant. And again, it's been shut down since March 26th. That's at the heart of the frustration for Elon Musk. Yeah, I know these plants aren't easy to move, but, uh, but he, I mean, he, I, I would, nothing he, he does would surprise me including naming his kitten. No, we'll get into it. Uh, Phil, thanks very much. Phil LeBeau with the very latest uh, in the back and forth over that factory. Well, if you've ever driven down I-95, there's a good chance you've seen a Comfort Inn, a Quality Inn, or an Econo Lodge. Ed, we're speaking with the company behind all of these brands about the path forward for the whole hotel industry and how they've managed to keep 97% of these domestic hotels open right after this. Welcome back. As states across the country start to reopen, the travel industry is wondering when Americans will start vacationing again and what exactly that will look like. Here's a hint. There may be a lot more refrains of are we there yet. Seema Modi has more on what the path forward will look like. Seema? 
Kelly, travel across the nation dried up at the height of the epidemic with a closely watched revenue metric at Marriott declining 90% in April. Now, as beaches reopen, more Americans are starting to leave their house. For example, this weekend, the Ritz-Carlton in Santa Barbara, hotels in Hilton Head, South Carolina, saw occupancy reach 50% based on reservations on the books. Marriott CFO telling me a broader recovery in travel rests on the containment of the virus and airlines returning to full capacity. Remember, a lot of hotels can only be accessed by plane, for example, the Canary Islands. What is also encouraging, the rebound in China with hotel occupancy climbing from 10 to over 30 percent in recent weeks. Europe is expected to take the longest to recover. Experts say part of the reason is because it's driven heavily by vacationers and an older demographic that may be less willing to travel abroad before a vaccine for COVID-19 hits the market. Kelly? Yep. Seema, we appreciate it. Thank you. As she just mentioned, hotel stocks have been under pressure for a few months now. But one hotel chain that's outperforming peers is Choice Hotels, with 97 percent of locations in the U.S. continuing to operate. For more on the path forward for the travel and hospitality industry, I'm joined by Pat Cacius. He's the CEO of Choice Hotels. Pat, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Kelly. You know, the first question everyone around here had is how in the world do you keep 97 percent of your hotels operating? Well, 90% of them are owned by small business owners, and we operate in the mid-scale and the extended stay segment. The majority of our portfolio is in those segments. So owners are able to flex their payroll costs depending on the seasonality of uh, demand. Uh, They're able to um, close out entire hotel floors if they need to. Um, So these owners are very flexible, and they also have financed their uh, assets with a low level of debt. So their debt service in many cases is not so overwhelming that they can't get through a really tough time like this. I assume you guys are are too big, but maybe you're not. And what about a lot of your small business franchisees? Are they getting PPP support? So about 70% of our hotels have been able to access either the PPP or the EIDL uh, disaster relief loans from the SBA. I had the opportunity to go to the White House with a lot of my industry colleagues about... uh, I guess a month and a half ago now, and we were able to advocate for those changes to the small business loans that allowed more of our small business owners to actually be eligible. Um, and as a result of that, we've seen a high number of them apply for those loans and are getting funding. And what would you say, so the restaurants in particular, but there was a Texas hotelier who kind of caught everybody's ire. What would you say to the people who said, why, why did you guys get a carve out so that each location was treated individually and more people could get help? And, and why is that fair? Well, I think you have to think about the hotel industry. When this started, we were housing people from the Nashville tornadoes. So the hotel industry is a necessary um, uh, functioning um, asset to have in any time of emergency. Um, A lot of the people that are in our hotels today are National Guard or COVID-19 responders. So the hotel business, when hurricanes come in, tornadoes come in, it provides a place for shelter when people have to leave their homes. And so that's another reason why we are part of the critical infrastructure and why a lot of the state governments allowed hotels to remain open during this time. No, that's a great point. It also explains where, you know, some of that revenue is coming from right now. Like you said, you have special room rates, but you've allowed people to open for hospital overflows, temporary housing for first responders, healthcare workers, critical infrastructure workers and others in dire need. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you know, once you have the hotels open for those uh, folks, what happens? You know, we spoke with the CEO, uh, the president of Northwestern University a, a couple of weeks ago. He said they're looking at possibly using hotel rooms in the Evanston area if they need to for their students to return to campus and social distance this fall. W- would anything would you guys be open to something like that from different uh, 
you know, colleges and universities across the nation? That is something we are looking at. We have a lot of hotels in college towns. And with students not being able to study abroad, you're going to have a lot higher student population on the campuses. And a number of universities are reaching out to our hotel owners and asking about the ability to uh, rent out their hotels during the upcoming uh, fall semester. So it is something I believe uh, our hotels are uniquely positioned to uh, support that type of uh, overflow if the universities need that. Hey, I, no study abroad, I hadn't even considered that. You know, if they're not only on campus but not leaving, that could be, you know, 10%, 20% of students in some universities. Right. So, yeah. Pat, let's talk about you guys have obviously had to make some cutbacks, suspended the dividend, share buybacks, 401k matches, hiring freezes, and, and many of the measures that many other companies are taking right now as well. What is the path forward? I mean, how quickly do you expect, especially hotel demand, to return to anything like normal? So we entered this crisis with a very low level of debt in our balance sheet. Uh, as a company, we've always been a prudent allocator of capital. Um, so we were able to not have to really impact our cost structure until we had a really good idea as to what was happening. So we, we probably had an additional 30 days worth of industry insights before we had to take significant cost measures. I think what we're going to see is a return to travel that will be regional and sporadic. It's what we're seeing today. The southeast part of the country where a lot of our hotels are located um, did rebound sooner. Uh, we're seeing weekend build weekend over weekend as more travelers are able to get out. Um, and two thirds of our business is leisure travel um, in normal times. And so we do expect leisure travel to return before business or group travel. And we think that will benefit our owners as well. And if, if I were uh, thinking about staying in one of your hotels, what would you tell me about the cleaning procedures now? So we just launched a uh, new initiative, our commitment to cleanliness. It is a uh, initiative that has new protocols. So when you walk in to the hotel, you're going to see a glass partition between yourself and the front desk. There's hand sanitizers in the elevators. There will be a captain or a cleanliness captain, a person designated at each hotel to uh, make sure that those heightened protocols are being followed. So extra cleanliness, extra partitions. Uh, and we're really moving to a world where we're going to do touchless check-in mm -hmm. and the ability for you to opt out of housekeeping. So if you don't want a housekeeper in your room uh, while you're staying there, you can opt to do that as well. Pat Patius, uh, so many fascinating tidbits. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Kelly. The CEO of Choice Hotels. And that does it for The Exchange. Over to Tyler for Power Lunch. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.